0: Church with a worldwide vision for winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. We're a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Christian Fellowship Ministries. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Your hands, you
1: hold the universe. Uh, I would have to have about four, eight, or ten sermons, but I want to try to wrap it up as we look together at the book of John and chapter one. This incredible incredible scripture penned by the Apostle John. And as we see here, the journey of Jesus. Let's read John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 14, if you would look at that quickly this morning. 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The journey of Jesus. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we come by the precious blood of Jesus. I'm so grateful for the people that are here today, each individual life. I pray, God, that you would help us to understand that you are the God who was not satisfied to sit back and watch as humanity was despairing in our sin, but God, you got involved. You sent your son, Jesus. You gave him a journey to go on to invade space and time in order to bring things back to, to you. I pray this morning that wherever every heart here is this morning, no matter what is happening in our lives, that you'd remind us that you are a God who invades into the depths of of our lives and our situations and our minds and our hearts. And you are the God who can set things right again this morning. I pray that you would bless your people today as we look at your word. We give you glory in Jesus' mighty name. God's people would say, amen. The journey of Jesus. And I want to begin by examining with you this idea, this concept that is in the scripture here in John chapter 1. And it is the concept of the word. It begins with these words this morning. It said, in the beginning was the Word. Now, I don't know if it's the same in your Bible, but in my Bible, when when they go to translate this idea, this concept from the Greek language, they actually give that a capital letter, W, for the Word. And there's a reason why that they do that. See, John's gospel, you have to understand, there's four gospel accounts in the New Testament. The first three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what they call the synoptic gospels. In other words, they are simply eyewitness accounts. They are a retelling from three different eyewitnesses of the events that happened surrounding Jesus of Nazareth. When John goes to write his gospel, it's very different than the other three, and maybe you've noticed that as you read through the New Testament. John's gospel is focused very primarily on the person of Jesus and the miracles that he performed. There's a reason for that. John wrote his gospel account much later on than the rest of them. He was an older man when he penned these words. He had the time and he had the life to be able to process the things that he had seen, and the things that he had heard. He began in his heart to weigh the meaning of those things, and that's why we have such a very different account from John than we do from the other three Gospels. Not to say that he contradicts them in any way, but we see the difference right from the start. Where the other three Gospels, they simply begin to give an account of the facts and the times and the places and the people involved and the kings. And yes, we gain valuable information. But John, he takes another turn as he describes this one who came to visit us 2,000 years ago. And he begins with these words, in the beginning was the word. Now, this, is, uh, this has become, over the years, over the centuries, has become one of the closest studied scriptures in all of Christian doctrine. It is also uh, regarded as one of the greatest Greek passages in all of the world. In fact, if you were to take an, uh, a, uh, a course in ancient Greek language, it would probably be that you would spend the first semester translating something from the book of John. John is regarded as something like a Shakespeare to the Greek language. And when he begins to describe what Jesus did, he begins to bring our memory back even to the first line of Genesis. It's no accident that he began with this phrase, in the beginning, which reminds you of Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning. John is taking on a concept that is, Bigger than, he, than we could even imagine. And just as the Old Testament started with in the beginning, he takes that idea and he applies it to Jesus. In the beginning was the word. Now the word, as it is described in the Greek language, I hope that you can follow along with me this morning. It is the word logos. Everybody say logos. Now that is a very important thought. A very important concept in the Greek mind. You remember that this New Testament is being written in the Greek language. That so much of the Greek philosophy has come up even into Jesus' time. The Greek culture and the Greek language were bleeding with this idea of philosophy and meaning. Even to this day we have Greek ways of thinking. Uh, Aristotle and Plato and these ones, various ones, were the very first philosophers. These were the ones that became famous for trying to work out how logic works and how uh, how to study life and how to understand truth. At the end of the day, these men were interested in how to discover truth, how to figure out what was really real and what was just fantasy. And that is the idea that is wrapped up in this word of logos. It goes back at least to the 6th century before Christ, a philosopher named Heraclitus. He began to use this idea logos as the reasoning power of man. Later on, thinkers began to develop this idea. The logos was a rational and a spiritual principle that began to go throughout all reality. This is what they called the Logos. In their mind, the Greek mind, remember that the Greeks, they were the ones who had all these tales and stories of uh, heroes and fables and stories. And all of this was designed to bring out the truth of life, the Logos. It was, as they thought, it was the soul of the universe, one first century philosopher named Philo, he taught that the Logos was the intermediary between God and the created universe. Think about that. And he began to interpret religious terms into this idea of Plato. The Logos, the logos was how God delivered to man the understanding of the natural world. And so the Greeks were onto something here. As they began to process and think about what is this idea of logos? It means logic, it's the same word, it means truth, it means what is really real. And that's why, for those people who first read John's gospel, that they got it. What well, we don't get today, when John said in the beginning was the logos. They understood what he was trying to say, that this truth, this reality of life has been around from the beginning. And he says that this Logos was in the beginning with God and this Logos was God. And this Logos, this what the Greeks for centuries were trying to persistent, trying to discover, trying to understand, they sat around gazing at their belly buttons, hoping they could figure out what the true logo Logos was. And John says, we found him. In the beginning was the Logos. It's an eternal concept. It would have resonated with the Greek philosophies of the day and also the Jews who were searching for the revelation of God. In the beginning was the Logos. The Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And he begins his idea, his description of Jesus speaking about this concept of Logos, the word with a capital W. Let me ask you this morning, what is really real in your life? Because we deal in our own minds and in our own hearts, we deal with a lot of fantasies. We give our lives to things that really, in the span of eternity, are not going to mean too much. We give our attention and we give our money to things that are temporary and passing away. What the Greeks began to understand, this there is something called a logos. There is something bigger. There is an idea, there is a concept beyond us. They didn't have a name for it. But John is telling us we know his name. We know who the Logos is. We know what is really real. Now, this Logos that the Greeks were searching for throughout their, throughout their history, he says we have found him. He is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It says this in Colossians about Jesus. Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, Whether, uh, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. In other words, in Jesus, everything has its being. What does that mean this morning? Remove Jesus from the picture. What do you have left? Absolutely nothing. Without Jesus, there would have been no creation. Without Jesus, there would have been no human beings. Without Jesus, you would not have the things that you have. Without Jesus, you wouldn't have a car. You wouldn't have a home. You wouldn't have a paycheck. Without Jesus, you wouldn't have a life. Because in him, all things live and move and have their being he is the logos the word that was in the beginning with God and indeed he is God the Bible has many ways to describe this Jesus the one who journeyed to the manger the Bible has many descriptions of him he is the creator of all things in Isaiah chapter 9 we have this wonderful description of Jesus Isaiah 9 verse 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder, his name will be called Wonderful, say Wonderful, Counselor, say Counselor, (laughs) Mighty God, say Mighty God, (laughs) Everlasting Father, say Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, say it. That scripture always blows my mind because as it speaks about the son it describes him the son as everlasting father. Figure that out. I can't. That's what's going to be fun about heaven by the way. Because God is going to try to ex- let me try to explain it to you one more time. I'm going to draw a picture this time. Here's the son everlasting father. I still don't get it, God. <laughs> Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. This is the word, the Logos, that John is describing from the beginning. Can you imagine how important Jesus is to the universe? Can you imagine? Without him, there is not a molecule. Without him, there is no energy. Without him, there is no divine spark. Without him... There are, there is no sunshine, there are no stars, there are no planets without Him. He has the preeminent position in heaven. We know that God the Father, it pleases God the Father to put all of the eminence on His Son, Jesus Christ. And even though we understand Jesus lives His life in submission to the plan of the Father, I would argue today that all of heaven and earth is focused on the Son of God. It is focused on Him. When the angels spend eternity praising His name, we have that that picture in Isaiah chapter 6 where the seraphim, these are special created angels designed for one thing and one thing only, to bring glory to God. And for all eternity, these creatures, these beings, are made simply to glorify God. Can you imagine how much glory Jesus had from the beginning? Can you imagine that he sat on his throne in submission to his father, and yet the focus is on Jesus? Just like you, if you're a parent, you know what it means to give greater honor and glory to your child. It brings you pleasure, doesn't it? I wish that my daughters would be blessed far better than I could ever be blessed. And so also, the Father in heaven, it blesses Him. It is His good pleasure to bring greater glory and greater honor to His Son, Jesus, from the beginning. The Holy Spirit. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit, He would come, and what would He do? He would tell the world about Jesus. Again. We have all three persons of the Trinity and all of the Father. It brings pleasure and glory to the Father to bless and honor his son. And the same with the Holy Spirit. You know why the Holy Spirit lives in you? So you can be more like Jesus. So you can understand more about Jesus. So you can understand who he is, who he was, and who he is becoming. It's all about Jesus this morning. From the beginning, it's always been about the Logos. That from the beginning, God made the promise. As Adam and Eve fell in the garden and as they entered into temptation, that God the Father began to speak and He said in His prophecy, as He began to condemn and curse the ground, He cursed the man, He cursed the woman, but there in the middle of that curse was a promise. He said that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. And right there, he's speaking about his son, Jesus, that one day, even though the serpent will have his way, even though the enemy will attack. But one day, the seed of a woman, Jesus, the son of God, would ultimately take the victory. And now. Now I hope that you have a little understanding of who this Jesus really is. He is not just a figment of someone's imagination. Not just Santa Claus story of fantasy. No, no, no. Jesus from the beginning was the Logos, is the Logos. He was, he is, and evermore shall be the glory of God. There's nothing greater than Jesus He has not been created. He's not the firstborn of God in the way that the Mormons understand. He is the only begotten, eternal Son of God. You know who we're dealing with this morning? We're dealing with Jesus. The ever-eminent one that I wish I had time to explain more about. But if you have just a sliver of understanding who Jesus is, the Word, then you will begin, hopefully, to appreciate what it means when the Word was made flesh. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, this concept of truth, this ideal of reality, this revelation of God, this most perfect beauty, this truth, this everlasting glory of God, limited himself and became flesh. Now, when the Bible says that God is a spirit, it means that he is not limited. Can I tell you, because you are You are made of flesh and bone. You are a physical creation. God made humanity to be this divine union of spiritual and physical elements. You are, yes, a physical creature, which means that you are limited to a single time and place. You can only exist right now in this place. You can't exist on the other side of the world at the same time. You can't do it. You are limited. God does not understand that. Jesus would never have felt the way that you felt because he is unlimited. The word, as he existed from the beginning, was ever-present, omnipresent. He could be present both here and on the moon and on Pluto and in the Andromeda galaxy at the same time. He could also be here in 2018 and at the the year zero and at the year 4000 BC at the same time. That all of space and time is this box that God created. And Jesus can stand outside of it and say, that's pretty cool. And he can say, I'll I'll step in here. I'll step in here. I'll go talk to Moses today in the burning bush. And I'll go talk to Peter, James, and John up here at the top of the mountain. And I'll go down here to 2018 and to 3,000 and 4,000 and 10,000. He is omnipotent is outside and above space and time and can you imagine how terrible it would be if that was you one day you're going to limit yourself from almighty powerful creator to a tiny little helpless child in the arms of peasants born in a barn dependent on others for survival at the threat of some puny king your parents have to take you to egypt to escape could you imagine what that must have been like for jesus can now i hope that you can begin to understand the journey that jesus had to take it was a journey of humility that jesus in his power had to humble himself, had to limit himself so that all the fullness of the Godhead could be compressed into a tiny child born in Bethlehem. That is why Christmas is something to be celebrated. Because all the fullness of the Godhead comes to the earth limited to time and space. The Westminster Catechism says it like this, Christ, the Son of God, became a man, taking to himself a true body and reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, born of her, yet without sin. Conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Mary. This is something that had been promised through the prophet Zacharias. This is something that had been promised through Abraham. To Abraham and his seed, the promises were made. And to uh, throughout the Old Testament, even the the even the as the angel appeared to Zacharias in the book of Luke, chapter one, and he began to prophesy that the Son of the Highest would be born as a baby. This doctrine of the virgin birth, as we looked at in our Bible study, this doctrine without the virgin birth, that all of Christianity would fall away. Jesus could not have been born from a a human father. If he had been born of Joseph, then he would have inherited the sinful nature of all humanity just like you, and he would have been just as bad as you and I were and are. That's why it's so important that he was born of the Holy Spirit. It also says that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he was equal with the Father, and when the fullness of time was come, he took upon himself the nature of a human being. Just think about that journey for a moment. That at the same time, within that little baby, in that little manger, in that little city, in that little nation, on this little planet, that all of the fullness of Creator God was dwelling. Think of that journey now. At the same time, Jesus had the nature of an almighty God and the nature of a human being without sin. John, in fact, goes on to warn us about a heresy that began to, to spread in his time, that Jesus was only a man, and lacking the, the fullness of God. But he began to warn us to, to re, be reminded that, no, Jesus was not only fully man. He was also fully God at the same time. This is not some kind of split personality. This is not some kind of schizophrenia that sometimes he's God and sometimes he's man. No, but for the entire duration of his human life and even to this day, he remains fully God and yet fully human. And why is that so amazing this morning? Because it means that this unlimited, infinite, powerful, omnipotent, omnipresent God Understands what it feels like to have to go to the bathroom. Understands what it means to struggle with temptation and sin. Understands what it means to build a human relationship. Understands what it means to be afraid, to be hungry, to be cold, to be bruised to have physical ailments he understands you the bible says that jesus was tempted at all points as you are there is nothing that you have gone through that jesus does not understand because he's been through he was tempted and tested in all points as we are the difference is that he went through it all without sin without sin. And so, when the Bible says that the Word became flesh, this is what we're celebrating at Christmas. This is what we're so amazed by that the infinite, unlimited God of the universe can be boiled down into the body of an infant. What a miracle that when Mary was holding that child in her arms... She was holding the creator of all things. Can you imagine? <laughs> I saw something online yesterday. It was a, it was a meme of, uh, have you ever seen that meme with Batman slapping Robin? It's one of my favorite ones, right? <laughs> and Batman, uh, Robin is singing that song, Mary, did you know that you're baby boy? And Batman is slapping him, saying, of course she knew. She sang a better song than he did. (laughs) Of course she knew. The angel already told her. Now, as we close, this is where a response is necessary. The word, the logos, the ultimate reality of God becomes flesh. And here's where your part begins this morning. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Everybody say, beheld his glory. This is the proper response to the truth of incarnation. You know, there's that scripture in Revelation that says, That through the process of time that in heaven, that there was a time and there was a period of 30 minutes where there was complete silence as the books begin to be opened. You ever read that one in Revelation? And for half an hour in heaven, there was absolute silence. You know why I think that is? I think everybody was just so blown away. It was like they were (gasps) for 30 minutes straight, (laughs) not able to speak because of the glory of God being revealed. I want to tell you that this truth of the incarnation ought to inspire in you the same level of behold. Take a look at this. We live in a world today that's demanding our attention constantly. Every commercial says, hey, look at me hey, look over here, you need this, you need more of that. What you have isn't good enough. Behold this, behold this new iPhone, behold this new gadget, behold this new car, behold this new uh, kitchen gadget. Behold this new person, this new personality, this new sports player. Behold what they can do, the new, behold all these, and demanding your attention. And yet, the truth is, that when you give your attention to things of this world, it does not produce Anything good. But when you and I. When we begin to do what the Apostle John did, he said, we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. There was people in John's day. There was an entire Jewish culture at the time that when they saw Jesus, they considered him for a moment, and then they rejected him, sending him to the cross. There was an entire culture of people, not just the Jews, but many of the day who said, Jesus, come on. The one from Nazareth, what good could possibly come from Nazareth? There was many people of his day who did not appreciate the almighty God in flesh. And we might look back at them and say, how could they make such a mistake? But if you lived during that time, you might have made the same. The apostle John, he begins to put two and two together. That this baby born in a manger, the same one who grew and who had to work a job, and the same one who had to provide for himself, and the same one who had to provide for his family, and the same one who had to suffer at the hands of men, the same one who had to pay taxes, the same one who had to uh, suffer sicknesses and suffer uh, uh, rejection and sin and death, and the same one who had to go through all these things. And at the end of his life, he overcomes death. And those disciples begin to say, whoa, we're dealing with something else here. There's that story when Jesus is on the boat with his disciples and the sea is tempest-tossed and the waves and the wind are throwing them and they think that they're going to die and Jesus is taking a nap in the bottom of the boat. And they wake him up, Jesus, don't you care about us? Don't you care anything Because we're about to die in this storm, Jesus wiping the sleep out of his eyes. He says only a few words, peace, be still. And the sea became calm like glass, and the wind died. Could you imagine if you were one of those disciples? Like, Like those guys in heaven for half an hour. Who is this that we are dealing with? the one who commands the waves, the one who walks on water, the one who can be raised on his own power from death. Can I tell you, nobody prayed for Jesus. He was raised from the dead in his own power. And here is where your response is necessary. Christmas demands response. The incarnation of Jesus demands a response from you. The Apostle John, when he began to think about these things and put them together, his response was, we beheld his glory. We began to respect and honor and venerate him as the son of God. But I want to tell you, that's not what everybody does. That's not what everybody does. 2,000 years later, there's still millions, perhaps billions of people on this earth who say, Jesus, what's the big deal? Jesus, who's he? Oh, yeah, that Jewish guy. Good teacher. Didn't do much else, though. There's still a whole lot of people. There's still a, lot, a, whole, lot, a, a whole group of Christians who are probably in church this morning. And though they name the name of Christ, still not living the full experience of, of beholding the glory of God. That's the call this morning. That's my call to you. Once again, to behold him as who he really is. Not just a a figure, a character in a story. Not just a fairy tale in a book. But the one who is timeless, ageless, And at the same time, God is big enough to command the universe. And he is small enough to whisper your name. To know you personally. That's why Jesus is so different than every other person in this world. There's, yeah, there's a lot of powerful people. There's a lot of big people who have a lot of money and fame and power. But they don't know you. And you don't know them. You might know their name. I want to tell you, if you knew them well enough, you'd be getting a paycheck. But that's the difference with Jesus, that he's big enough to be the commander of the universe. And he's also small enough to know who you are and to know the number of hairs on your head. He knows you today. And the response that is demanded from you and I is this. Behold, behold, to do what the angels do. It says in Revelations that the 24 elders who live every moment around the throne of God and they have crowns on their head. And these these elders in heaven, the Bible describes them. These are people who have done great things for God. And because of their great works, they've received crowns. The Bible says there will be a reward in heaven for our righteous deeds. And these 24 elders must have done something really good because they got some awesome crowns and they live in the presence of God in his courtroom. And what does the Bible say they do? All eternity they begin to bow down, worship the king, and they remove the crown from their heads. And they cast them before Jesus. You know what they're doing? They're beholding his glory. They're saying, yes, we earn these because of our good deeds. But all the glory belongs to you, our Savior. Maybe one day you'll get to be one of those 24. You'll get your turn to take all of the glory that you might have earned with your good deeds and that God rewards you. And you'll get your turn in the circle. I get to cast my crown. Before the king, say to me, It's nothing. It's worthless compared to the opportunity to bring you greater glory, oh God. This is what we do. This is why Christmas is special because it is our turn to behold his glory. On that night, 2,000 years ago, when the world had its back turned to Jesus, the world wasn't expecting a baby. The world was expecting a conquering hero. And God sent a helpless little baby on the backside of Bethlehem. And the only people there that night to behold his glory was a peasant girl and her peasant future husband, a few sheep and donkeys probably, some, sh- some dirty old shepherds from the hills, and by the way, the entire heavenly host of angels singing like a choir. Those few people got to do what we can do today. We can do what the rest of the world refuses to do. We can honor and recognize Jesus for who He is. And that, beloved, that is the life of worship. When you live every day with that sense of honor and respect and beholding God for who He is and Jesus for what He's done I want to tell you, it'll change how you live. It'll change how you talk. It'll change how you spend money. It'll change your what you think is important. That is the call. That is the response today. Behold the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Let's bow our heads.
0: and love people.